Hi Brickies, I'm Dominic, the last one standing with a kink for cannibalism. And I'm Kate, the resident phobia expert who also hears voices. And you're listening to Shit and Bricks. A podcast where we talk shit about stuff that scares us. Ripping a few laughs and survival tips along the way. As always, please subscribe, rate and review us. And don't forget to follow us on the socials at Shit and Bricks Podcast. Like the morning after a night on the curries and cans, here it comes. So drop your ducks, pop a squat and let's get into it. The audio is now recording. Oh, wunderbar. <laughs> Kate, real quick, if you Shoot. had to have a thick accent, what accent would it be? Italian. Okay. That's that's cool. Yeah. I think, but I was just now I put myself put my foot in it because I'm like, hang on, wait, how do I do a thick Italian accent? <laughs> <laughs> I find South African really funny, so I would oh, pick South African. Oh, South African. I'm going upstairs to pack my bigs. <laughs> Diplomatic immunity. <laughs> Hi, Kate. Hi, Dom. How are you? Oh, lekker, bro. How are you? <laughs> ah, the boy beautiful. Today's my turn to tell a story, isn't it? Yay. I mean, it is. I don't have one written, so <laughs> I'm sure I could just make something up. This so. pen on my desk is a paper mate. Now, paper mate. No, we don't want that. What is the phobia of death by pen? <laughs> oh, that's a great question. <laughs> well, before we get started, uh, I guess we should do a little bit of what? Housekeeping. Yes, housekeeping. Okay, folks, we do this every day, well, not every day, every time that we do an episode, but that's because it's important. So please head on over to all of our amazing social media channels, Tiki Tokies, uh, Bookface, yep. Instabam, it's all Shitting Bricks podcast. You can't miss us. We're the only it's ones. So, and we recently celebrated our 500th follower on social media's instagram yeah and since i mean that was just for us at the time of recording uh that was less than 24 hours ago we have an additional five people that I have know. jumped on in that small amount of time so just keep on racking them up get your friends to like us get your friends friends to like us we're, we're so cute and fun we're trending it's amazing i love it <laughs> And while you're at it, why not go check out our Patreon, which is also Shitting Bricks podcast, because Kate and I just finished recording another special episode based on last week's uh, Ponzi uh, episode. So, yeah, Kate, that was amazing. Thank you for doing that. Um, you are so welcome. The only way you get to hear it, folks, is if you go and sign up and be one of our little patrons. It's really yeah. easy and fun. Do it. It's a couple of bucks a month. Do it. Yeah, absolutely. But... It is the start of a new year. We've got lots of exciting things coming your way. So, you know, uh, stay tuned for all of that really great stuff. And if you ever want to chat to us, all you have to do is send us a quick little email. If you're not on socials, just email us at shitting.bricks.podcast at gmail.com. And that is housekeeping done. Amazing. Period. Love it. Oh, my God. Period. And finish. 
Before we get started, Kate, though, on uh, this week's episode, mm. I don't know, well, it's retroactive because you probably would have by the time this is released, but we have upgraded our YouTube video and channels and I've gotten so carried away with the <laughs> special effects and the transitions. Yes. yes. Please do yourself a favour, folks, and go check out YouTube. It is entertaining now. Amazing. Do it. Go on there now. <laughs> I've had We've way too much fun. So, oh, it's great. I love it so much. We've just got so much content that can entertain you all just for hours and days. It's really showing our age too, so it's got a great millennial <laughs> flair about it. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Staying true to character. Yeah, we were just talking about Wall Street, the movie, and how classic 80s it was. Well, our our stuff is classic 80s too, in a sense, because we were both born in it. We were. We were there. All right, Kate, let's get to it, shall we? I love this so much. It just came to my attention that, so I didn't realize, but Dom told me that we have an unofficial five-minute intro that we will do, but we rarely go over five minutes. Uh, the only reason I'm talking about this now is because I have 24 seconds left <laughs> before it gets there. But I love that about our episode. So just know that Dom is going to start his episode in 10. Not, no, it's too long. You can start now, but I love it. It's now I'm thinking about it since you mentioned it. I was actually hoping you'd count down. <laughs> <laughs> Three, two, one, hit it. Here we go, folks. So this week, <laughs> our episode, which you should already know because you've clicked on it, is called The Family. And Ooh, the family. I know. We're a family. The family. We're the family. Kate and I are actually family, but it's well, not th our family that this episode is about. And I thought you were about to say it's not our fault. And I'm like, <laughs> well, it's actually, it's not. We were, just <laughs> we were just put together. Yes, we do not take any legal responsibility for anything <laughs> that happens in this story because <laughs> uh, it's scary as fuck um, but if you're not Australian you may have never heard of this before the family is actually the name of Australia's most notorious cult oh I really don't know about this and that's not shocking if you've listened to more than one of our episodes you would know I know nothing I have a very specific amount of knowledge if you listen to our Wall Street mini episode on Patreon you'll know what that specific knowledge is but I don't know anything so I can't wait well I just I've been wanting to do an episode on cults for since we started it was one of the top you know themes that we you know were spitballing but there's just so many of them and they're all very varied and different and I've referenced a couple of them very lightly but I thought let's keep it nice and local this is an Australian story um, and just recently Netflix released a special on the cult of the family you should go watch it check it out it's obviously my pop culture reference for this week I love it when they give us a call and say, what are you going to do an episode on anytime soon? Because we'll release a special on it because it's happened so many times in the last 18 months of us doing this. It's wild. You know, we are, as we said, we're trending. We solve we crimes are. like Summer we to do. Man. Boom. Crash. Boom, crash. Opera. <laughs> uh, we should probably all watch out for the stock exchange because <laughs> going by last week's episode. Uh, yeah. If you've got shares, uh, just be mindful. In blue steel, blue yeah, steel blue star, airlines. Blue star airlines. <laughs> Sell, buy, low, high. Buy, low, high. 
Fly, fly away, go. <laughs> fly, fly, fly. That was the last week. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. And I totally did something in the video to make that look great. But anyway. Amazing. You can um, put a transition, put some explosions behind you. <laughs> it's so bad. But sorry, folks, I'm getting excited. But just quickly, three sources this week. Um, obviously, Growing Up With The Family, it's uh, it's an article in The Guardian from November 2016, Classic Wikipedia, and then DrParadox.net. Kate, check that one out if you're bored Ooh. at home with a red wine. I usually am. Cool. So... Let's get into it. Obviously, the theme is around cults, and the particular cult is the family. But as we like to always start, a little bit about phobias. Yes, please. There isn't a particular phobia based on a fear of cults, but I did find something very interesting that is still related. So cults, they use what's called phobia indoctrination. And it is one of the principal ways a charismatic leader will lull potential followers into their thrall. It's by putting them into a state of perpetual fear and anxiety. That's a brilliant phrase. Phobia indoctrination. Does that mean that we're a cult, Kate? Um, Well, I mean, we try not to like get people into that state too often we like to educate them that this is what we're going to talk about so if you have that phobia perhaps it's not for you although the family i have in my basement uh, (laughs) that's a cult um but not so much the podcast listeners (laughs) please don't call the cops on gate (laughs) no they're fine i throw some food down there every couple days (laughs) yes now These cult leaders using phobia indoctrination, they know either instinctively or through training or a bit of both, that people can be induced into a prolonged state of confusion quite easily and that many people in states of confusion act quite irrationally. So abusers or cult leaders and any other controllers, they use demagoguery and other tricks to hide in plain sight and continue to accure power while passing themselves off as harmless or extremely patriotic. Can I just welcome to the podcast demagoguery? (laughs) Take a seat in the foyer. (laughs) Lizzie Truss, Charles Ponzi's in there now, and Margaret Thatcher turned up the other day. It's quite awkward. Talk about (laughs) demagoguery. Demagoguery is going to make an absolute, like, they're going to have the best time in there. What a great word. It feels so good to say it. Oh, demagoguery. Mm. Now, these chaos agents, they use emotional manipulation as a tool of control. They whip followers up into a fear frenzy frequently enough to instill a set of phobia-like instinctual reactions to chosen stimuli. So in addition to stoking fears of the enemies at the gates, they also inculcate irrational fears of the consequences of questioning their authority. Mm-hmm. Really important element to, to keep in your mind as we go through this story. So any doubts expressed about the leadership or its doctrine are subject to terrifying negative results and cults use this formula to wield undue influence over followers and prevent them from questioning or leaving the group. 
So I'm just trying to give people a bit of an idea of the psychology behind how the hell do people fall into this cult trap? Yeah. Yeah, it's such a common question. Right. It's like with, with um, what's what's it, Leah Rimini, is that her name? Yeah. She was on King of Queens in the Scientology and then she came out and was talking about it. And she says that so many times. She's like, people are like, how did you fall for it? It's fascinating. Imagine if you were chromatophobic, as mm. per Kate's last episode, and... You they know, forced you to spend money all the time. Exactly. You yeah. know, they're like, if you're afraid to spend money, just give your money to us and we'll make sure that it's never spent or used or whatever. Of course they do. Well, they spend it, yeah. Yeah. Now, as part of a larger overall program of brainwashing or mind control, cults and destructive organisations use imaginary extremes like going to hell, being possessed by demons, failing miserably at life, a race war... Uh, a leftist apocalypse, you know, pick your poison. There's so many yeah. fears and things that people can... Pick your Kool-Aid, yeah, you know. exactly. There's so many things. <laughs> Actually, don't. <laughs> <laughs> don't ever drink anything that is, un- that is opened. Don't drink the Kool-Aid. <laughs> but they use all of these to shock followers into refusing to examine any evidence whatsoever. It's sort of like a form of unethical hypnosis. Phobia indoctrination can now be carried out on a mass scale thanks to the internet and our massive media apparatus. Mm-hmm. And one other last little bit, which I think is really interesting because I've been listening to this amazing podcast called Schmeitgeist. It's an okay. a- ABC podcast. One of their latest episodes was on AI and the, and the risks along with uh, generative AI, and they talk all about it. I think there's a term and I don't, I've forgotten it, but it's how generative AI can actually erode at the trust that we have in the things that we see and that we hear. Oh, Imagine oh we, you know, got Margaret Thatcher's face and voice and we could tell, we could make her say anything that we want. Imagine if yeah. that was up on the news and you just didn't know. Is Maggie back or not? Is Maggie back? <laughs> I mean, she's making a cup of tea right now, but she's not back as far as I. No. Yeah. But all very interesting stuff. But that's my little introduction. Let's get into the actual story of the family. The family. Oh, it's such a sinister name. Like cults. I love it. Yeah. I want to know. All right. Let me introduce you to Anne Hamilton Byrne. Hi, Anne. She wore pearls and Chanel perfume. Love it already. It's a good combo. (laughs) She played the harp and sang soprano. She had blonde hair styled in waves that caught the light. And as leader of the family, the Australian doomsday cult she founded in the 1960s, she claimed to be Jesus reborn as a woman. Okay. Why can't Jesus be a woman? Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Well, she is now. Now, much of her power, say her former former followers, lay in her grey-blue eyes. Quoted, In ancient times we hear about enchantresses who could enslave people with one glance, says ex-acolyte Fran Parker. She had eyes that looked through your soul. Hamilton Burns' ultimate tool of enslavement, however, was something she pinpointed herself in a rare radio interview after the cult's devastating abuses were exposed. In her words, she said it was love, just love. 
I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think, I mean, I don't know the story, but I don't think so. Yeah. It's just the <laughs> mental state here is, it's, it's something. Now, one of the few female cult leaders in history, very interesting point to bring out, mm-hmm. and apparently one of the cruelest, Hamilton Byrne operated in almost total secrecy over two decades. She was hidden away in the countryside just outside of Melbourne. What? Yeah. Just That's where I live. I know. Just near where our grandma used to live, Kate. Oh, my God. And the family's motto was unseen, unknown and unheard. The police, acting on information from two child escapees, escapees, raided the cult in 1987, (gasps) which was the same year. What was? They started filming Wall Street. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it emerged that over the years, Anne had collected 28 children through bogus adoptions and gifts from followers, dressing them in identical clothes and bleaching their hair platinum blonde. I'm oh, I've heard about something like this. Yeah, it is like pure children of the corn look. Oh, my God. Yeah. To keep her eerie brood under her control, they say she subjected them to vicious beatings, starvation, and emotional torture. Anne wasn't giving love, says Parker, whose young son was one of Hamilton Burns' victims. She was offering it and then taking it back. She broke people's spirit. Yeah, that doesn't sound very lovey-dovey. No. Now, this glamorous guru used the same tactic on her adult followers, handpicking them from Melbourne's wealthy professional elite with promises of spiritual fulfilment in the 1960s and 70s, where new age seeking was all the rage. She would say things like, I've been waiting for you. And she'd often say on uh, first meeting a potential recruit, she'd say, you are special. Mm. Now, Mother Dearest, members of the family, were given this photograph of Anne and one of her 28 children to place on the altar of each of their rooms. Um, I'm just going to try and find that photo for you, Kate, because it's just so fucking... I'll find it while you... Yeah, I'll have a look. It's so, so scary. There's just this black and white photo, folks, and I'm going to put it on our socials so you can all see it. But it's this, it looks so beautiful and lovely, black and white photo of her holding a child. Um, and she's got gorgeous pearl earrings on. But it is just, when you know the sinister story behind it, it's so unsettling. Uh, I don't now, like it. Yeah. Now, Anne, she preached a mishmash of Christianity, Eastern mysticism, and apocalyptic prophecy. She allegedly forced followers, including children, to take dangerous amounts of LSD and other hallucinogens as part of prolonged initiation rites. Once they had submitted, she'd dictate every aspect of their lives. There was only one rule, do absolutely everything she said, says David Whitaker, a former child survivor. That included what to think, what to wear, what to eat, who to marry, who not to marry, Total obedience. Mm. Now, a few years ago, speculation emerged that WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange had grown up in the family. No, he's got blonde hairs. Right. His hair colour didn't help, nor possibly his personality. If anyone has watched (laughs) anything of Assange, 
<laughs> Look, his hair colour didn't help, but neither did his personality. It just uh, wasn't screaming, I'm normal. It was a bit off. <laughs> now, Assange admitted that a man who was his mother's boyfriend in the late 1970s had been a member of the cult. Oh, damn. The man had been, in his words, a sinister presence. In Assange's, pre- in Assange's words, he would call him a sinister presence who sought to have a certain psychological power over his family. And they eventually went on the run from him. So Assange says he never met Hamilton Byrne or had any direct contact with the group as a whole. So it's a bit of hearsay. Yeah. But I thought it was an interesting anecdote. Definitely. Now, by the time of the police raid, Anne had broken up families, destroyed marriages and left her child victims with lifelong psychological scars. A number of her followers tried to kill themselves either during their time in the family or after they escaped. Tragically, some succeeded and the cult leader amassed an estimated AU $150 million through property, land and cash donated by her followers. Wow. A lot of money. That's so much money. She hid overseas and was eventually arrested in 1993 on relatively minor fraud charges. So let's wind the story back a little bit and see (laughs) what happened. Now, together with her second husband, businessman Bill Byrne, whom one ex-follower described as a handsome, rich, compliant handbag... Oh, I'll take two. (laughs) (laughs) She has never been held to account for the appalling child abuse or long list of other crimes of which she was accused when the cult's inner workings were exposed. So there's also a picture of um, Bill Byrne, and I'll show that as well. Um, He looks very handsome and lovely, and their son, Adam. But he remained loyal to Anne through everything, which is... You know, just devastating. Yeah. Now, at the time of this article, she was 96. Anne had advanced dementia and had lived in a Melbourne nursing home for the past 12 years. She did die recently, Kate, in 2019. Okay. But her story and those of her victims won't go untold thanks to the efforts of Chris Johnston, a journalist with Melbourne-based newspaper The Age, and Rosie Jones, a documentary filmmaker. Johnston and Jones first met two years ago and when they realised they were working separately on stories about the family, both aware that its all once powerful leader was nearing death. I was mostly writing stories about what was happening to the cult's remaining assets and structure and Rosie was already two years into making a film about the experience of the survivors and their long-term emotional trauma, says Johnston. Now, both of them, they're actually New Zealanders, which, by the way, New Zealander documentary makers are just fascinating people, and they always find the really good stories. I'm going to do an episode on Tickled. Have you ever heard of Tickled, Kate? No. Not surprising, though. I have, folks, hearing here, this is possibly one of my favorite stories of all time. Okay. Uh, I'm not going to even touch upon it now, but I'm going to do it a whole maybe two-parter on Tickled. But it was another New Zealander documentary maker that stumbled across this story that's total diamond in the rough. Like no one... No one had done it. No one even knew that it existed. 
So well, that, if you do tickled, I will do an episode on being tickled sure. because that's one of my fears. Cool. So <laughs> we'll double down on tickling. But cheers to New Zealand because you're, you're producing some pretty amazing documentary and journalists. Yeah. Now, they discovered in a further coincidence that they came from the same hometown, Johnston and Jones, the journalists in the yeah, same hometown. So they decided to collaborate and their co-authored book and Jones's feature documentary, both entitled The Family, are released in the UK, was released in the UK in 2016 when this article came out. Cool. Now, through one of the few followers who remains devoted, Johnston and Jones were able to visit Anne at the nursing home. So just so you know, folks, it's still happening to well it was still happening while Anne was alive so they're just gonna go go and see her yep leave her alone don't do that yeah it's scary now her inability to give consent as a result of her dementia meant it was impossible to interview or film her it was an extraordinary encounter all the same says jones She was dressed beautifully in blue and still had long silver hair. Her hairline, however, was on top of her head because of the numerous facelifts she had during her reign to maintain the illusion of youth and immortality. I just pulled her hair. (laughs) (laughs) The photos are amazing. She had a goatee by the end of it. Um, They also say her speech was mostly incoherent, but she sat there nursing a plastic baby doll. She held the doll so tenderly, so gently, and I found it incredibly powerful to witness, says Jones. That's creepy. All right. Now, there have been a handful of female cult leaders in modern history, but none to rival the destructive notoriety of men like Jim Jones, David Koresh, or Japan's Shoko Asahara, which Mm -hmm. I don't know if we're ever going to do a story on that because it's it's probably the most graphic thing I've ever heard or learned about in my life. Okay. And I, I couldn't even get through it all, but yeah. It's okay. it's intense, but anyway, the closest is Houston-born Bonnie Lou, Lou Nettles, who co-founded the so-called UFO cult known as Heaven's Gate, which uh-huh. I've spoken about. Uh, she did that with Marshall Applewhite in the 1970s. Like Anne, the Nettles believed she was on a divine mission, but she died of cancer 12 years before Applewhite and 38 other members committed mass suicide in 1997. That's where all the Kool-Aid stuff comes from. Yeah. Okay. All right. Now, most women founders, most of the female founders, are associated with so-called new religions, such as Amy Semple McPherson, who founded the Foursquare Religion in Los Angeles in the 1970s, or New Jersey-born Elizabeth Clare Prophet, pardon the pun, who launched the Church Universal and Triumphant in 1975. And they... The 70s were big for the cult startups, weren't they? Yep. What was, what was happening to people in the 70s, Tom? What was going on for them? It was just a massive age of rebellion. And yep. 60s had, was all about that freedom and, and, and tearing down systems and government and, you know, f- free love and da-da-da-da-da. This was sort of like an overcorrection. Life isn't yeah. so simple and blissful. 
And you know, maybe on the back of that, maybe there were people that were moving into the 70s that didn't really like what was happening in the 60s and they craved structure and they craved uh, order and they, you know, wanted something to work for or to be a part of that they didn't fit into in that free love, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, community that the 60s brought over. And obviously the the role of drugs and religion, it was all just... You know, people were looking for answers. Yeah. Right? Some more organized answers or religion apart from the usual, you know, things that have been around for generations. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, place a time for right picking and influence and. Yeah. It was a powder cake. Impressionable people. <clears throat> now, um, That Elizabeth Prophet from the Church Universal and Triumphant, she encouraged their followers to build fallout shelters to prepare for imminent nuclear war as well. So, Mm, you know, you can convince this is back to that fear, right? Utilizing people's fears. Now, according to Johnston, one of Anne's inspirations was a woman named Helena Blavatsky, a Russian-born medium who co-founded the Theosophical Society in New York in 1875. Madame Vlatsky, as she was known, was a champion of Tibetan esoteric wisdom. She described theosophy as the synthesis of science, religion and philosophy and was instrumental in introducing Hinduism and Buddhism to the West. Now, Anne first became attracted to Eastern religions and mysticism when she took up yoga in her mid-30s in the late 1950s. There's so many interesting cults and things that linked back to yoga or the practice of yoga as well that's a whole nother kettle of fish if you want to go (laughs) read about that that's a whole nother story but uh, born Evelyn Edwards in 1921 she grew up in a one road farming settlement two hours east of Melbourne this is Anne by the way who we're talking about so yep Anne Hamilton Mm -hmm. the blondie with the pearls the mother of the family now Her mother, Florence, was originally from Wandsworth in South London and Florence was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia after setting her hair alight in the street and she spent 27 years in a psychiatric asylum until she died. Whoa. So Anne's upbringing was... A little rough. And her relationship with her mother... Also rough. Yes. Okay. Just connecting a few dots. We love an origin story. We do. Now, Anne's father, he was an uh, itinerant worker and she spent time in orphan and Anne spent often time in orphanages. So she was, you know, very unstable and un- an idea of what family is, is obviously rather disjointed and broken. Mm-hmm. Now, Anne married her first husband when she was about 20, but he died in a uh, accidental car accident, accidental oh, car accident. An- <laughs> A planned car accident. An accidental car purpose. Uh, He perished. (laughs) I just blipped there for a second. Uh, It was quite tragic, really. They had one daughter together and there have been rumours that she suffered a number of miscarriages after that. It's only recently come to light that she and her husband were arranging to adopt a baby right before he died. He died. Okay. Now, yoga became the young widow's salvation. The practice was just emerging in the West and Anne started teaching it in the early 1960s, mostly to middle-aged women in Melbourne's well-heeled suburbs. I love that term. 
well healed. Yeah. So Turak, Mulvin, <laughs> now, Bayside. You, you betcha. Now, Anne was apparently a wonderful teacher and these women became her first devotees, says Johnston. She was clever and intuitive. She knew how to find the chinks in people's armour. Often these wives were in unhappy marriages. Their children had grown up. They were looking for new meaning. Mm-hmm. Feminism was on the horizon too. It was a whole confluence of factors. Divorce was still not accepted, but she would encourage the women to leave their husbands to join her, says Johnston. She also attracted gay male followers, offering them refuge from Australia's laws against homosexuality at the time. Uh, I don't know if I quite call Anne an ally. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's like even when you hear about, you know, there were tragic things that happened to her. And I want to respond to those tragic things as I hear them, but also keeping in the back of my mind that this person's a monster. Um, so it's like it doesn't take away from the fact that those things that happened are tragic. But, yeah, it's tricky to be bipartisan when you're like, no, but I got to know what she does. Yeah. I mean, it all starts somewhere, though. So who knows what her intentions were? I don't know if she was quite as insidious maybe from the very beginning, but who knows? Sure. Now, Anne's masterstroke, however, was to recruit an eminent uh, physicist from Leeds, Dr. Raynor Johnson, who was Master of Queen's College at Melbourne University. You pass that every time you go down Alexander Parade. Queen's College is on your left, just opposite the mm-hmm. cemetery. It's so yep. weird. This is so, like, relevant. That's bizarre. Yeah. You do that when you go to the zoo. If you ever come to Melbourne and you go to the Melbourne Zoo, you'll drive right past it. That's where he worked. And now spiritualism was gaining popularity in scientific circles and Johnson, nearing retirement, was eager to explore unconventional territory. He became besotted with the beguiling woman who claimed to have extrasensory perception. He even went one better and declared her to be the new messiah. Oh, God, relax. Now, after experimenting with LSD, purely in the interests of scientific research, he claimed. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I always say. He recorded in his diary that her face became divinely beautiful with sublime authority. Sure. Okay. You're just tripping balls, babe. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the party. Off your rocker. (laughs) Do you know how many times I've seen the Messiah? So silly. Now, later he would write that she was unquestionably the wisest, the serenest, and most gracious and generous souls he had ever met. Now, Johnson, who was married, and his wife bought a house in Fernie Creek, the hamlet where Anne lived, and the family was born. I was trying to figure out where two hours from Melbourne east would be. And it's Fernie Creek. Yeah. Which, for those not familiar, so Victoria as a state in Australia, we have almost every kind of landscape um, here, just in one state. Yeah. So beaches, snowfields, mountain ranges, wineries, Plains, whatever. Everything. We've got it all. Um, and Fernie Creek is, yeah, it's a hilly, suburban forest yeah. area. Yeah. We go we drive by it all the time or we near do. it. Yeah. Now, Johnson and his wife bought the house in Fernie Creek and that's when the family was born. 
The intellectual respectability Johnson brought to the mission enabled him and his high priestess, Anne, to recruit many more wealthy New Age-seeking professionals, including doctors, psychiatrists, lawyers, nurses, and social workers. Well, especially when you've got that clout of someone who studies this. It's, a, you know, it's not just... Oh, come and have a look at my the new moonstones that I got, mm. and they put them in the moon and they regenerate. Uh, it's like scientific backing of a person that studies it. It's yeah. It's and at that time, people's knowledge and understanding of these things. It's all they don't have 30, 40, 50 years of experience like we do yeah. in today's world. You know, this is the sixties, seventies. It's very exactly. different time, so you can also, understand. S- Sidebar, just to be clear, I have nothing against people that are into stones and (laughs) and minerals. I have some myself, so that was not a dig. I'm very much in that that camp. Get me some amethyst around my neck immediately. I need it to cleanse me. Now, they would hold weekly meditation sessions and Anne started giving sermons or discourses, as she called them, from a purple throne in a specially built lodge funded by donations. Oh. During the late 60s and 70s, New Haven Hospital in Kew was a private psychiatric hospital owned and managed by one Marion Villamec, a sanctinicate... Oh, lordy. <laughs> Santinicatan member. Okay. Many of its staff and attending psychiatrists were also members. Now, many patients at New Haven were treated with hallucinogenic drug LSD, and the hospital was used to recruit potential new members from among the patients and also to administer LSD to members under the direction of the psychiatrist John Mackay and Howard Whitaker. Now, one of the original members of the association was given LSD, electroconvulsive therapy, and two lectomies, lecotomies, lecotomies, also called lobotomies. Why did I not read that first? (laughs) During the late 1960s, for some reason, I thought they were two separate things, but that's not correct. But anyway... Now, although the psychiatrist hospital had been closed down by 1992, that year a new inquest was ordered into the death of a New Haven patient in 1975, which is around the time the family was beginning, after claims that his death had been due to deep sleep therapy. So these people were being like hyperdrugged with LSD. It's oh, so, so he went dangerous. into the deepest possible sleep you could go into. Yeah, as in dead. dead. <laughs> Now, the inquest heard evidence concerning the use of electroconvulsive therapy, LSD, and other practices at New Haven, but found no evidence that deep sleep had been used on this patient. The New Haven building was later reopened as a nursing home with no connections to its previous owner or uses. But folks, that means that you can go there and actually see where family recruitment was being well and truly done. I don't want to do that. Now, back to the family. The first children arrived in the early 1970s. Adoption was poorly regulated in Australia and unmarried motherhood still carried social stigma. Through her network of followers, Anne found it easy to procure infants. You had babies born in cult hospitals, delivered by cult midwives, handed over to cult social workers says Lex DeMann, one of the only two senior detectives in the Victoria Police Force 
trying to bring charges against Anne and her collaborators after the 1987 police raid. Cult lawyers would falsify the adoption paperwork. The attitude of his colleague at the time, Mann says, was that cases involving kids were welfare matters, not real policing. Oh. So the systems in place, Kate, were just, and the, the people that they'd strategically recruited, doctors, midwives, yeah. lawyers, everything, it's just, and it was not like she went global or national. She wasn't trying to grow too big too quickly like you should also not do if you do a Ponzi scheme. There you go. She kept it local, kept it very strategic. It's ugh, makes it even more disgusting. Think global, act local. Mm. Now, Anne told most of the children whom she adopted fraudulently that she was their birth mother. She faked numerous pregnancies by wearing a homemade smock with padding underneath. Okay. She said they would survive the end of the world to become a new master race. Ugh. I've heard that term before. Didn't work out very well. No. Everything we wore had to be polished and looking the same, says Adam, a survivor in his 40s, interviewed in Jones's film, who was adopted into the cult as a baby. Naturally fair, his hair was dyed white blonde to match the others. That was to implant in us that we were all brothers and sisters. Yet the children knew nothing of Anne Anne's real background until the cult hit the headlines in the late 1980s. In addition to being Jesus, she told them she became she came from royalty and owned castles in Europe. Why not? She's everything. They not, Jesus can have a castle. Exactly. They not only worshipped her, they adored her too. We believed she was beyond the Queen of England, says Adam. Oh. Now, Anne housed the children in a sprawling wooden lodge at Lake Eildon, two hours away from the family's main base. The area was beautiful but isolated, and once a floodplain, the lake was filled with partially submerged trees jutting out of the water in dark, spiky formations. The children, whose numbers eventually grew to 28 and included a few babies born to sect members, were all homeschooled. Anne wanted to be the perfect mother figure to a perfect brood, but she seemed to have no interest in actually raising the children. If she was there when any of the children stepped out of line, they say she would often beat them herself. Her weapon of choice was a stiletto shoe. (gasps) No. Yeah, she was quite a glamorous type woman. (laughs) Glamorous Jesus. Now, but mostly she left it to the aunties, a number of middle-aged female followers who feared their own precarious place in her affections if they didn't enforce punishments. As well as horrific... Horrific? Oh, Oh, the horrific. So horrific. Beatings that made many of the cult's now adult survivors weep as they recall either witnessing or receiving them. The children were often starved for days for minor transgressions such as getting their clothes dirty or forgetting to switch off a light. Denial of food was a very large component of control, says one survivor, who remembers being so hungry she raided bins and ate leaves. It's better to keep your victims weak so they have less ability to fight back, Anne once said. Another hot tip. Now, the survivors recall being given daily doses of mogadon and Valium as children to keep them docile, 
Then usually when they reached the age of 14, they underwent formal initiation into the cult by being given huge, relentless doses of LSD in trips that often lasted several days, says Chris Johnston. LSD was part of the cult's fabric. The prolonged doses were harrowing, even for adult followers. The effects were catastrophic on some of the young teenagers who suffered depression, personality changes, nightmares, and social withdrawal, sometimes for months afterwards. And that was on top of all the other childhood traumas. Rosie Jones says the long-lasting nature of the emotional and psychological trauma experienced by the cult survivors shocked her the most during the making of her documentary. Now, the downfall of the family all began with Sarah Hamilton Byrne. She was expelled by her adoptive mother in 1987 because of arguing and rebellious behaviour. With the support of a private investigator and others, she then played an instrumental role in bringing the family to the attention of the Victorian police. As a result, a raid took place at Kai Lama, which was the name of the Lake Yildon property, on Friday the 14th of August 1987, and all children were removed from the premises. Sarah would later went on to study medicine and became a qualified doctor. She also learned that she had been adopted and eventually got to meet her biological mother. Well, that's good. Yeah. It made me realise the critical importance of love in a child's background. For most of the children, Anne was the only mother they had. And in a, in a police interview shortly after the 1987 raid, one rescued teenager tried to explain how she felt. It's hard to say how devoted we were to her, how we hung off her every look and every thought she had about us. We wanted so much for her to love us, but I don't think she ever really did. Now, after the raid in 1987, Anne and her husband, William, remained outside Australia for the next six years. Operation Forest, an investigation involving police in Australia, the UK and the US, resulted in their arrest in June 1993 by the FBI in the town of Hurleyville in Catskills in New York. They were extradited to Australia and charged with conspiracy to defraud and to commit perjury by falsely registering the births of three unrelated children as their own triplets. These charges were then later dropped. Elizabeth Whitaker, wife of psychiatrist Howard Whitaker, was their co-defendant. And the Hamilton Burns pleaded guilty to the remaining charge of making a false declaration and were fined only $5,000 each. That's it? The conspiracy charges against Whitaker were dropped, but she was convicted of falsely obtaining nearly $23,000 in 1983 and 1987. Almost done. Now, in August 2009, two individuals received financial compensation from Anne after suing her. We don't know how much. Her granddaughter, Rebecca Cook Hamilton, sued her in 2007 for alleged psychiatric and psychological illnesses. She alleged that she received cruel and inhuman treatment from Anne and her servants, including beatings, being locked in a freezer, and being forced to take medications. She also alleged that she was given insufficient food. Her award was estimated to be around 250000 Okay. A former member of the family, Cynthia Chan, alleged that she paid the sum of $352,000 to Anne for real estate in Olinda, Victoria, but the property was never transferred to her. 
She also alleged that she paid the sum of $70,000 to Anne for another property, but this too was never transferred to her. Mm-hmm. Anne said she had no memory of the matter. And Ch- yeah, of course she didn't. Yeah, and Chan's judgment was estimated at 250 grand. Now, in the 1980s, police estimated that Hamilton, uh, Anne's, sorry, Anne Hamilton Burns' fortune could be as much as $50 million. She was extraordinarily wealthy with overseas properties in Kent and upstate New York. Anne managed to hide her whereabouts for two years preceding her capture. She was eventually extradited to Australia and all that. The only charges were um, that would stick were the two um, fraud ones for $5,000 each. That sucks. What is most insidious about this situation so late on in her life was the dementia. Her victims have had to come to terms with the fact that she would never be brought to account fully for her bizarre and unusual cruelty. It's probably little consolation that all she has left to torment her is that small plastic doll. And that is the creepy, creepy story of the family. I can't believe they couldn't find anything else that was illegal. Yep. They extradited her in everything for a $5,000 slap on the wrist. That's absurd. She had such done such a good job with these lawyers and, you know, so many it's just it's and it's during the 60s and 70s and early 80s. It's like, ugh, it's Yeah. And it's not like she no one was murdered as far as anyone knows, so it's not like there's a body, there's none of that stuff. So this is all kind sure. of legal paperworky crap and adoption y crap. So it's really Oh my god, really different Wow, that is that's messed up, Dom. Yeah. So anyway, I've always wanted to do a cult story. Trust me, they are much more sadistic, graphic, gruesome stories out there, folks. But I had to pick a close to home Australian story. I loved it. Story. Thank you so much for that. I enjoyed learning things because, as you know, I don't know anything. <laughs> you know heaps, Kate, just not about this fucked <laughs> up shit. <laughs> no, that was almost like a little palate cleanse, or not cleanser, but like a little, you know, cults. I want to know more. Mm. So I, I hope that you do more episodes in the future. I sure will. There's. One or two that I will definitely do. I need to work up to them because they're quite, quite graphic. But okay. there's some, some some really interesting ones out there. I'll do one very Ooh. absurd one and then I'll do one that's um, that's very just uh, violent. Okay. Um, and I'll even put a bit of a sneak in our socials if you want to know which one I'm going to do. But I think, I think I might have to do Tickled soon. So anyway. <gasps> okay. Sounds amazing. All right, folks, as usual, please check out all of our socials, Shitting Bricks podcast, email us, sign up to Patreon, do all that great, great stuff. But most importantly, spend 15 seconds giving us a five-star review because we are a five-star what? Podcast. <laughs> I love Is you, that Kate. right? Yes. Is that what you wanted me to say? Okay, good. I thought I said the wrong thing then. I was like, no, wait, are we a podcast? Yeah. Five star pod. <laughs> I love Quick, you, go Kate. review now. We love you all. Speak soon. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Five star pod. That's a wrap. Big shout out to everyone for tuning in to Shit and Bricks. 
Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review us. Plus, you can find extra little nuggets on our socials. Next week, we'll be back talking more shit, so do not forget to tune in. And remember to wipe, flush and wash your hands. Goodbye. Goodbye.